Welcome to Radical AI, a podcast about technology, power, society, and what it means to be human in the age of information. We are your hosts, Dylan and Jess, two PhD students with different backgrounds researching AI and technology ethics. In this episode, we interview Razier Bousset Chetin about colonial, decolonial, and postcolonial AI and the newly released Decolonial AI Manifesto. Bousset is an AI policy and ethics researcher and consultant. Her work revolves around ethics, impact, and governance of AI systems. She combines her lived experience with her interest in postcolonial studies, intersectional feminism, and science and technology studies to develop critical thinking about AI technologies and the narratives around it. And today we're just gonna get right into it. So without further ado, we're so excited to share this interview with Buse with all of you. Today we are on the line with Buse to discuss the AI Decolonial Manifesto. Buse, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for inviting me. So uh, let's just dive right into it. So what is the AI Decolonial Manifesto and how did it come to be? Um, what is AI Decolonial Manifesto? It's a, it's a big question. I think we will need to, um, maybe we will need to start with uh, what is coloniality? What, is, what does it mean uh, decolonial? What does it mean decolonial AI and so on? And um, actually, I think my, my answer is going to be a, a little bit disappointing because um, I think this is actually supposed to be one of the first topics of conversation that we would like to have as the, the team behind the AI manifesto, because uh, we realize that um, terms postcolonial, decolonial, decolonization, decoloniality, and so on, uh, mean different things to different people, and also the people with lived experiences of colonization, especially. So for some, um, it is a concrete political project uh, to liberate the, the land um, they, they live in. And for, for some, it's um, mostly an epistemological or ontological project. So um, we actually um, launched this or put this call out there in order to make space for this plural and maybe sometimes contradictory visions of what decolonial AI is, or if it is it even possible to imagine a decolonial AI or what is left of AI after it's decolonial. Um, so uh, I think this is kind of uh, the purpose of this manifesto to it in, in a certain way. Um, and I cannot, I'm not an academic and I want to also, uh, you know, show respect to all the people who have been researching this for years or also people whose, whose lived experiences um, are, uh, sh should be part of this conversation. Uh, but as somebody who researches, uh, who works in policy, advocacy and art in the AI or AI ethics field, I can explain a little bit uh, why and how these concepts or these ideas resonated with me. Um, so um, 
I started learning about AI and AI policy in 2017 uh, through an AI policy course. And I remember uh, my first question after the very first class was to go and see the professor and ask about um, what about the other countries? By other, I, I mean non-Western because I come from Turkey, right? Um, and this kind of question and, and, you know, thinking about, okay, I understand the United States is the leader in AI. I, I understand there's China and so on. So it makes sense um, as, a, as a continuation of industrialization and, you know, information uh, and communication technologies and so on. But how about the others if this technology is going to have such a big effect uh, maybe either good or bad, depending on how people project themselves. And uh, then, then what about us in a way? Um, and then this pushed me to, uh, you know, look at the intersection of quote unquote development and uh, and AI. And I put I use quotes when I say development because uh, that's exactly the point that I that I'm trying to make. Because um, when I was in um, you know, international policy uh, forums uh, about at the intersection of uh, global south, again, in, in, you know, like codes and development and AI, um, I started to feel a, a, a kind of unease. Um, although I think uh, everybody was very well meaning and trying to, you know, um, do something good. Uh, when you look at the, for example, metrics to assess the readiness of a country, uh, for AI adoption or development, let's say, and you start looking at the metrics used by international development banks, banks and similar organizations, you see stuff like, uh, for example, rule of, rule of law index or, or, you know, like similar things. And when you start to dig deeper, at some point you realize that all these metrics are kind of related to each other. And basically, they also uh, serve for differentiate, differentiating um, Western and non-Western countries. Of course, things are not as simple as that. And where there are many statisticians, mathematicians and scientists who are working beyond those. But um, at some point, I remember having seen very like sub indexes or metrics. I was like, OK, what does that mean? So this is related to this one. They all come together. What I see is like if you're not following a Western, uh, if you're not a Western country and you don't have the Western democracy model and you're not um, at the center of the global political economy as of today and historically, then you are behind and you're going to lag behind. And that's the discourse, you know, anyway. So that was one thing, very deterministic and uh, kind of vision where then um, Western companies like would come and um, for for uh, knowledge and technology transfer and uh, you know NGOs would try to um, put out and 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 invent certain uh, models of management so and and so on and the second thing kind of that got my attention and that bothered me was that we were trying to in a way uh, promote the potential of ai technologies by saying that the use of ai is going to help indian farm farmers in doing this but where's the evidence you know what do the the people in question think about this application is it really going to be helpful for them these were some gaps that i had and and and, and then this pushed me to kind of encountered the work of Arthur Escobar in development and 
uh, understand the emergence of development as a as a discipline and the political and economic uh, context that led to it. And I think this was kind of my entry point um, to think about more critically and to, you know, like have this um, exposure to postcolonial Lism, in a way and uh, then i was also very much marked by um the works of uh professor uh said uh, mustafa ali i hope i'm, I'm pronouncing his name uh, correctly about whiteness and existential risk because again when thinking about singularity and exist existential risk there was something that didn't quite you know connect with me and and i was wondering what it was and it was very reassuring to find his works and to have this parallelism between um kind of this uh, apocalyptic projections of ai and and singularity and 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 the uh, judeo-christianism and the similar themes uh, in this um, religious and cultural tradition and of course its implications Ultimately, what this, why this, um, these ideas resonate with me is that decoloniality or coloniality, ideas about coloniality, are about putting life and the regener regeneration of life above um, reproduction and production and recycling of goods. I think that's the ultimate point why I, I really resonate with it. But maybe before going to that, we can try to unpack some of the the terms or maybe you want to ask that question i don't know yeah that would be wonderful maybe we can just do like a a quick surface level 101 of what you mean when you say coloniality decoloniality and also post-colonialism i think i heard you say that too and i'm just curious what the difference between especially post-colonial and decolonial is i think all in all um, as human beings, we have this capacity of taking the map as the land, you know, and taking, for example, AI for whatever we project onto it. Um, so in general, what I understand or what I draw from these frameworks is that we need to look at the foundations upon which these technolo technologies or the imaginaries that we also project onto those technologies are built and how they are still affecting um, people who have gone through processes of marginalization um, colonization and colonialism um, ontologically uh, how they present how they feel how they sense and perceive the world and as well as our economic and political relations um, but just to um, unpack it a little bit i'm drawing uh, from again the work of um, Dr. Uh, Syed uh, Mustafa Ali, where in, in a brief introduction to um, decolonial computing, he unpacks these uh, terms actually very well, and very well, and I would encourage the, the auditors to go and check it themselves. Um, but basically, when we're talking about colonization, uh, we're talking about the expansionist migration, and um, example of that is the a European expansions migration to what we call the, the Americas or Australia today. Um, while colonialism is this the situation of ruling of in existing indigenous peoples 
um, of so-called new territories. So uh, colonialism is the situation of ruling where there is a relation between the center and the periphery. Colonization is the expansionist movement. Uh, but what is not told or what is not the, what we don't we don't learn um, is the um, is the is the actually the the empire the history of like dark history of colonialism the empire and the enslavement of peoples and and genocide and appropriation of uh, you know uh, resources and erasure of um, languages practices ways of being and relating and this is actually uh, what post colonialism and decoloniality is is you know drawing our attention towards um, and Postcolonialism emerged has emerged in the academia um, by diasporic researchers like Edward Said, Homi Baba, and Gayatri Spivak, um, uh, who were in Western institutions uh, and who were inspired by the uh, independence movements of formerly colonized states at that time. And this uh, postcolonial studies are also very much engraved in, in the English literature department and probably before like for this reason uh, they focus a lot on the cultural aspect uh, of by basically saying that okay the colonialism uh, as it is politically politically seems to be over for most of the formerly colonized countries but the legacies of it are still present today and we are shaped by it and basically also saying that knowledge production is not something neutral, that it's something that is related to power that we should examine. And um, I think Edward Said's Orientalism especially has had an important impact on me and, uh, you know, in, in thinking about it in a way. Uh, but how coloniality, modernity or, you know, the colonial scholars differ from that is that uh, they are also uh, diasporic researchers, uh, but they basically trace the current paradigm of modernity uh, to the early European uh, conquest of what we call today uh, Latin America. Basically, Christopher Columbus' uh, so-called discovery in the 15th century uh, and so on. They basically they say that this is the modernity paradigm that we live in today is the continuation or the culmination of a 500 uh, years history of uh, enslavement, empire, um, colonialism and so on. And um, yeah, I think all of these um, frameworks, frameworks and thinking kind of urges us to not be myopic in a way and to look at the history and the foundations and of the ideas that drive AI, um, where they're coming from and how they have impacted people and still impacting uh, especially marginalized uh, communities or anybody actually that is uh, beyond the norm of the, you know, universal default Western wild uh, white male in a way. For folks who haven't um, seen the manifesto yet or, or 
read it. Could you just say um, what it is <laughs> quickly, just like on a very basic um, level or, or at least like how you how you consider it? I think the manifesto is an invitation and it's I, I think it also um, invites us to to have some space for irony and talks our ability to hold contradiction and how I'm going to explain it because a manifesto usually is a powerful political tool, right? Where one one person or like a group of people say, this is how things should be. And they seek political impact and, and change in a very well-defined terms. Um, so the manifesto, uh, to for, for me to give a little bit background, as far as I know, has come from this um, observation around the consolidation or consensus around um, AI principles. So the you know we had this kind of not the emergence but this this hype around AI you know starting in 2016, and and that followed with the proliferation of AI ethics principles by companies, international organizations, uh, you know, and and many many different actors really. And this was for some is called as the first wave or like first kind of phase of AI ethics as of today. Um, and the where the principles come from, you know, they're mostly Western, right? And uh, the the ethics that we're talking about in the principles, they're mostly Western ethics, utilitarianism, uh, Kant, and and you know, like other frameworks of Western ethics, and. People also, some people also argue that now, like, okay, it is time to move to action and operationalize AI ethics principles. And therefore, these are the processes, these are the audits and so on and so, so forth. So we see a kind of consolidation, um, consensus, I'm not sure, but consolidation um, around these principles, especially around certain intergovernmental organizations such as the OECD or new ones like Global Partnership on AI. And again, with the, the center in the in, in the Western center and kind of, um, you know, other actors or non-Western countries following suit or not. Uh, so I think the need for this conversation emerged from uh, from that, that, okay, the, things are moving fast uh, and there's a consolidation. Uh, it sounds or seems very familiar. It seems like something that will then, you know, it seems like things are going to build on top of it. So we need to make sure that we stop and we also create space to discuss and still question how about we thought, how about we thought about this differently. How would we think about AI ethics if we took a non-Western ethical framework, such as, for example, Ubuntu um, and Sabilo, uh, who is uh, part of the team and one of the co-chairs has done amazing uh, work on that, you know, because in Western ethics, uh, you define the individual as one person and you equate it with rationality. But in the Ubuntu framework that he presents, uh, a person exists through other people, other persons. So we are, it's the relation and not one person or one person's, uh, you know, atomized relationship to any other thing that's at the center. So I think it was uh, kind of coming from this urge to 
you know, say just stop and we need to still keep having this conversation and how can we maybe try to facilitate or enable in a way um, a vision of the pluriverse where there is, um, you know, different localized centers of discussion and knowledge. So in that sense, the manifesto, it is not called a manifesto in the traditional sense, but a manifesto. It suggests it wants to use the strength and the dynamism of a of a traditional manifesto in order to, you know, like um, invite and 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 call for action and discussion and dialogue. But it also deeply recognizes the need to hold uh, plural views, uh, contradiction and not necessarily consensus, because we don't as human beings again, I feel like we don't have a lot of patience for that. Our kind of uh, maybe coloniality, like colonial mind wants to be sure of things, wants to have ready-made answers, yes or not, this or that. Okay, how do we move? Um, at the same time, this doesn't mean that we have time because at the, you know, the impact um, like AI technologies are already, already widespread and especially in very critical areas of our lives, right? And not everybody impact is impacted by them uh, equally. Um, so, so this is not to discourage any kind of action, but we think that we can have this, keep having these conversations in parallel and change also how we measure things. And I think this echoes very well with the measure mentality series that you have had um, at the podcast recently. So something that we try to do on this show whenever we have an opportunity to is to take these like conversations and more abstract ideas and to make them a little bit more concrete by um, applying them to a case study or a real world example. And so um, something that stuck in my mind when you were explaining this manifesto is right now we have all these AI systems that are um, attempting to apply these AI ethics principles in a really Western-centric way, like utilitarian ethics, for example. And now we have the potential to apply other ethical frameworks that are less Western-centric, such as Ubuntu ethics. And um, in my head, I, I feel like I am experiencing this cognitive dissonance because I recognize that with large tech, there is usually an issue of scale. And so sometimes, even though people have different preferences and ethical needs in different locations, geographically, culturally, whatever it is, um, if we're scaling these systems, we can't always pick and choose based off of what people need. Sometimes there needs to be like one solution for everything, at least the way that AI is created. So I'm just curious, like, with that case study in mind and the idea of scale, how does the decolonial manifesto um, maybe help us interrogate some of those challenges that we might experience so that we can come up with um, or so that we can utilize some of these non-Western centric ethical principles in our AI systems? Great question. I think there are multiple things. First of all, I think um, the manifesto or the colonial AI is not an attempt to make AI more inclusive or uh, make AI better or to offer a tool for big tech companies to, you know, I mean, ideally, of course, um, you want everybody to be 
to be asking these questions. Uh, but yeah, so what I'm trying to say is that it's not an attempt to um, make better AI. And if that's the case, and if that's possible with these ideas and frameworks in mind, uh, that's great. But I think what I'm trying to say is that the the idea of refusing certain AI technologies and applications should always be there and possible. You, you know what, what? This is what I was saying at the beginning. As um, so, what is left of AI when when once is let's say decolonial or decolonial decolonized? Um, maybe there isn't a lot of things left because it is already built on an infrastructure of of coloniality. Um, and and power. So I think at the end of the day, it's about understanding and examining also um, power. And thinking about the question of scale, independent of this oligopolistic structure of economic concentration, uh, you know, unequal um, extractive relationships in the global supply chains, or where the materials, data, and labor for AI to perform comes from it, it becomes complicated we cannot think of scale without having this in mind and and i don't have a have a solution for that but i think the the question of scale is part of the problem and something that we need to reconsider and think about okay how do we make sure that what we develop actually serves people or how people can themselves benefit from the benefit uh, benefit from um, these technologies can can offer or not or you know maybe that's not the solution the solution is something that we already have access to and it's not about the technological solution and 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 so on so one of the things that i was really struck by um, when when reading through um, at least the introduction of the manifesto is um, looking at the challenge posed by language um, that we use to talk about mm. AI, and you've spoken a little bit about this, but in this context where so much of technology has been dominated and designed by Western male voices, uh, whiteness and wealth, and I'm, I'm quoting from that introduction, you all seem to uh, want to challenge those voices and also the technology that we have now been uh, socialized to, to use. And so I'm wondering how we can disrupt, maybe that's not the right word, so correct me, but how we can upend some of that language when it's the, to some degree, the only language that we know how to use as a society when we talk about AI. Language is a tricky topic. Um, yeah, I think first of all, what comes to my mind is this question of English, for example, you know, speaking in English, like the fact that I now speak about this in English, and I wouldn't be able to hold this conversation in my mother tongue, which is Turkish. That's a contradiction that I have to hold and that makes me feel sometimes alienated. And the second thing is I think language has a has a double use in the sense that when again, drawing from my personal experience, when I was like working in policy and like at, at the intersection of development and policy and AI and feeling this sense of unease that something was not quite right, not having the language for it, you know, was a problem. And like encountering uh, the works of um, Quijano or Dr. Paula uh, Ricuarte Quijano and, you know, other scholars that I look up to in this field was empowering. But at the same time, 
uh, we need to think inside and outside language and the categories and mental models that we build in the language and also how we construct them in a way that are these categories and concepts that we we construct are they building hierarchies and power asymmetries as it is kind of the case or what these frameworks are are criticizing in a way um or or can we look at them uh, differently so language can be um can be problematic for example we can think about it as the you know ai ethics language that is not maybe appealing to uh, some people because uh, it doesn't encompass the questions of justice again you know like historical processes of marginalization and inequity and and so on so um i think we need to be able to um be very contextual and choose our words um, according to the context uh, we are in, uh, thinking about also what resonates with people and also not be afraid of uh, moving along certain words and concepts and reinventing new because uh, for me at the end of the day ideas or like words are uh, things that we assign meaning to uh, but the, the essence is something that is not maybe easily captured by words. It's it's also, you know, decoloniality is also, for example, a sense of feeling and, and being. Um, and it's a praxis rather than, uh, you know, these things that we put on a map and, you know, accept as like a source of truth or it, it's fluid in a way. This is how I see things. So um, I don't know if that's... Um, that answers your question but i think it it requires us to kind of establish a certain kind of distance and irony with the words that we also use and be open to uh, maybe create new ones um depending on the purpose uh if we want to be understood widely if we, how we want to be understood and and so on and like thinking inside and outside language and also i think it's important to create spaces to uh, have this kind of conversations in other languages than than English and um, we have a Spanish version of the manifesto on the website and we're also aiming to have other other uh, versions and I say version for lack of a better word is also English also um, visibly not my first language um, but yeah maybe probably uh, maybe you know, people are not going going to engage with this topic in another country uh, with these terms of decoloniality. I don't even know how to translate this into Turkish, for example, but maybe uh, through stories and narratives and maybe by remembering um, our like practices, spiritual practices, um, you, you know, like local uh, stories and so on. And that's actually the aim of this uh, manifesto in a way not to promote a like ready-made certain concept but just to you know uh, launch a call to make different simultaneous different but similar conversations happen and maybe like create a pluriverse of um, decentralized yeah cultural locations
Absolutely. Yeah. And thank you so much for the work that you and the team have done on this manifesto to start these kinds of conversations like the one that we're having right now. And for other people who are hoping to also have similar conversations or listeners who are resonating with everything that you're speaking about here, where is the best place for them to go to engage with this manifesto? And also, I think there's a a way for them to sign it, to endorse it. Is that correct? Yes. Um, so where they can find the manifesto is manifesto.ai and it is called AI the Colonial Manifesto and they can also sign it and they can be part of the mailing list and what we're intending to do with it is that we'd like people to just feel empowered to you know, just exchange and and start a dialogue and also um, organize workshops or any format that they imagine around also, I think, making um, other visions uh, possible or, you know, palpable through art, stories, yeah, other other ways of relating. Absolutely. And for listeners who are um, listening with their ears and not reading with their eyes, if you didn't catch on yet, this is manifesto, manifesto spelt with a Y, like many festo, M-A-N-Y-F-E-S-T-O dot A-I is that website. And that's also in our show notes, along with a bunch of other relevant, amazing resources that were mentioned and not mentioned in this conversation that are relevant to the conversation. Um, But for now, we are out of time. So Buse, we just wanted to thank you so much for coming on our show and having this conversation with us and for the really important work that you were doing out there. Thank you so much for having me. That was a real pleasure to have this conversation with you. Thanks for your amazing work too. We want to thank Buse again for joining us today and for this wonderful conversation. I think the thing that I'm most stuck with or struck by um, is this concept of language. Um, and especially when Buse was talking about how in Turkish she couldn't even be having this conversation and the level of translation that needs to happen in order to actually have these uh, conversations about AI in general across time and across space. I haven't really thought a lot about the language that we use and the different meanings and symbols uh, that are inherent in that language and how they, you know, pervade whole systems of power and uh, create and recreate systems of power. And so even the fact that this podcast is in English, um, it creates some barriers around how the information um, and the language of, of the guests that we have on the show, like where it can go and where it, it, it can't go. And so thinking about that, um, even as we have technology where one of the narratives is like, you know, the internet has crossed boundaries in some ways, sure, but in other ways, um, it has also created boundaries between cultures, between peoples, um, and between different sectors of language in the world. Absolutely. That was something that really struck me in this conversation too. I mean, the idea of not being able to speak about your job and your research and maybe some of the things that you're passionate about in your mother tongue, that's something that I take for granted as somebody whose first language is English, primary language is English. 
And it, it's something I haven't actually thought about or really reflected on as deeply since uh, a, a few years ago when I was doing a little bit of work teaching computer science in Colombia, the country, and uh, I was teaching it in Spanish. I had this realization for the first time that so many of the languages that we code technologies in, like computing technologies, are built on a foundation of English. And I mean, there's like, for example, the idea of like for loops and if and else conditional statements, like those are English words that have been put into a computing language as keywords that are in the English language. And so something like computer science that for so long, the way that I was taught it in school in the US was something that is like this global skill set that anybody can have and that anybody can do. But there's actually this huge barrier to entry and this gatekeeping that exists because for people who don't speak English at all, the idea of learning how to code and how to learn computer science, even in languages that aren't in English, might still require quite a bit of English knowledge. And so that, that was something that was really eye-opening for me at the time. And I was reminded of that in this conversation. One other thing that stood out to me was uh, the, the difference that Busse talked about between this model of inclusivity versus what they're doing. Um, and pretty clearly in the, the manifesto, it says, we do not seek consensus. We value human difference. Um, and I feel like even over the course of this show, we've grappled with what inclusivity means and whether it's a, a good thing, I guess, whether it's a value neutral thing, um, inclusivity for whom, when, et cetera. Um, but the fact that, uh, you know, returning to this language point, I guess, the fact that the manifesto says, you know, we reject the Western normative language of quote unquote ethical AI and suggestions of quote unquote inclusivity that do not destabilize current patterns of domination and address power asymmetries. And it does make me think about uh, different instances. And I, I, you know, I don't want to, to, to call out industry directly. I think there's a lot of different <laughs> systems where this can um, be applied, but, um, you know, inclusivity statements, or, you know, we talk about different dog whistling, or just like those check boxes of inclusivity, um, when they're not actually substantiated, and when they're not actually doing um, uh, the work of upending the systems of oppression that exist. Um, but that they just exist in order to include, you know, the word of inclusivity because it's the word of the day. So the fact that they're able to bring out so much nuance beyond uh, consensus and beyond concepts of inclusivity, I think, is a very powerful and an important uh, statement to bring into this conversation. You're also reminding me uh, something that I definitely wanted to mention in this episode is that this interview and this topic is long overdue for this podcast. It's something that we've been wanting to talk about on the show for a really long time. And we were just waiting for an opportunity. And when this decolonial AI manifesto came out, we jumped on it because we, we thought this was a really good case study to ground this topic in. But as for, I mean, many of you who are listening, if you've been around 
um, since near the beginning of this podcast, you might remember that we used to ask guests on this show for the first six or seven months or so of these interviews, we would ask them to define what radical AI was to them because we were trying to work with the community to uncover what the different potential definitions for radical could be as it is applied to AI and for this project that was a part of our, our initial goals with this project. And one of the topics and themes that we continually came back to with um, some really incredible scholars in this field was this idea of like radical as the root and digging into the root um, of these problems in society and trying to get past the surface level to really understand what are the causes of inequality and oppression and discrimination and some of these really sticky social challenges that and social problems that we have not as a society found um, answers to and that we may never find and likely are never to find answers to. And so this, this conversation about colonialism and decolonial and post-colonial just fits really, really well into that narrative that this, uh, this entire podcast was built off of in a way. So for me, I'm, I'm being reminded of some of the roots of our own mission with this project. And we do invite all you listeners out there uh, to read the manifesto and if you feel so called to sign um, and and to continue <laughs> this very, very important conversation. But for now, for more information on today's show, please visit the episode page at radicalai.org. If you enjoyed this episode, we invite you to subscribe, rate, and review the show on iTunes or your favorite podcatcher. Catch our regularly scheduled episodes the first Wednesday of every month with some bonus episodes in between. Join our conversation on Twitter at Radical AI Pod. And as always, stay radical. Mm -hmm.